Good evening, everyone. Uh, as Reed said, my name is Tucker Woodward. I am the second year intern here with RUF. Uh, went to the University of Florida. Grew up a huge Clemson fan, so it's been a dream to be back. Um, we're just going to jump on in. I don't have much of an intro. So tonight we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, uh, which is Paul's call to unity. So if you'll turn in your Bibles or look at the top of your handout, I'll read it real quick for us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, uh, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. When I say unity, what do you think of? If you're an engineer, you might think of some system or program working in perfect harmony to accomplish its goal. If you're pursuing something in the medical field, you might think about all the systems of the body and how they're all working together to keep us alive. If you're a political science or a history major, you might think about a group of people uniting under a common cause and starting a revolution. Or if you're like me, you think of a football team. For a football team to be good, everybody has to be on the same page. The linemen know who to block, the receivers know what routes to run, the running back knows exactly which way to fake the run, and the quarterback knows exactly where the receivers are going to be. And they also all have the common goal of winning the game. Unity is not only being in sync with each other, but it's also having the same goal in mind. Regardless of what you think of, we all can kind of understand unity. It might be hard for us to define if somebody just said, hey, define unity. It might be a little hard, but we can describe it through examples. And that's kind of what Paul does here. Um, Paul defines unity for us by describing characteristics of the Christian life, uh, or of Christian unity for us in verse 2. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So, there's four of them there. And the first and fourth one are essentially the same thing. He's kind of repeating himself when he says, being of the same mind and of one mind. They're typically grouped together as well. We can think of these as the thinking-oriented expressions of unity. Um, one commentator calls this unity of conviction and confession, which is simply unity of what we think and believe. It's important to note here that this is not calling for a complete unity of beliefs in every single area, um, because that's impossible on this side of heaven. We're humans, we're sinful, we can't perfectly understand the word of God as he's given it to us. Um, but Paul is talking about unity in the essentials of the gospel, also sometimes called primary doctrine. Um, I'm going to use the term essentials here. These are things like who Christ is, what his death means for us, and who God is. This is not unity for what we can call... Um, non-essentials or secondary issues. Things like views of baptism, different styles of worship, and types of church government. There's kind of room for disagreement there because there's not a clear teaching necessarily. Basically, because of our sinfulness and inability to perfectly understand God's word, there are differences and that's okay. But as Christians, we should be and we are united through the knowledge of the gospel, which can also be called the essentials. So those are the thinking-oriented char characteristics of Christian unity. But the second and third are the two expressions that deal with our attachment to other people. Having the same love and being in full accord. So these have to deal with our relationships with other people. 
with other believers. Um, having the same love gets at this idea that we all, as believers, have received the love of the Father shown to us by Christ's death on the cross. And we're all united by that love. That's what brings us together. Um, being in full accord is kind of tricky to define. Uh, the best definition that I could find is souls in harmony with one another, because it's when we're in harmony with one another, we kind of care and love for the other person, right? So that's God calling us through Paul to care and love for one another. We have a strong bond of affection with fellow believers that's grounded in the gospel. And the gospel stabilizes our relationships, so that way we can get to the differences and what we think and believe and kind of can get towards that one mind goal. Um, so that's kind of the quick overview of Paul's definition of unity. Um, so now we're going to go into kind of the key to unity. So Paul's description of unity in verse 2 is pretty comfortable and pretty easy to get on board with. Um, and I'd say we can all pretty much agree with it. But verses 3 and 4 are where Paul's words get a little more uncomfortable and challenging and kind of make you feel gross. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And on top of this just being a challenging thing for Paul to say, he's also commanding it. Uh, this isn't, he's not saying this is something you can do if you want. He's saying this is what you need to do. And I think it's important that he puts this right after describing unity. Um, because unity, or at least true unity, is impossible without humility. So literally, humility means to have a low mindset, um, which that's a great definition. But I think C.S. Lewis gives us a better definition. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And this kind of gets to the idea that we have of humility of like, I just need to think about myself less, kind of push down my pride. And part of it is kind of that, but it's just thinking about yourself less. This is also the definition that Tim Keller based his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, on. I highly recommend that to everybody. It's, I'm, I think it's 50 pages. It takes about 45 minutes to read. Um, and it's kind of good for anybody just interested in humility or kind of the idea of it. But both Paul and C.S. Lewis are getting at this idea that humility is impossible without a readiness to forget oneself and to exalt others. Humility is probably the most unnatural human attitude imaginable. I can't think of anything more unnatural. If you can, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but especially in American culture today, humility is incredibly countercultural and just not looked too well upon. We constantly want the, the praise and the credit. And in many ways, we're supposed to pursue honor and admiration. That's kind of what people encourage us to do. We're in a very self-centered culture. We want the credit, we want the admiration, and we want the spotlight. And I think the best evidence of this is social media and kind of the rise in popularity of it. So much about what we do is on the amount of likes and followers that we have and the attention that we get from them. Um, and you know, I was on Instagram the other day, and I saw this video where a middle schooler bought his basketball teammate a bag of clothes and some new shoes. And I was like, man, this is great. I, was, I wonder who posted it. Turns out the middle schooler that bought all of it posted it. Um, and this is a great and wonderful thing, very generous, very kind, but it got me thinking, why did he feel the need to post it on his Instagram? Like, what were his motivations? And I'm not trying to trash on the kid because this is a very normal thing to do, but it um, kind of got me thinking, like, humility isn't just what we do. It's the motivations behind what we do. 
So what does all this have to do with unity? Paul's basically saying that we have to have humble motivations behind our actions or uh, behind our desire for unity. If we're pursuing unity to feel good about ourselves, we're completely missing the point. And humility is the fountain from which unity flows. So I know you're saying to yourselves, all right, humility is important, but what do I do? And that's just the thing. It's not something you can just do. You can't just grit your teeth and wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be more humble today. It has to come from a place of our hearts being overwhelmed with the knowledge that we have received a supernatural, selfless love from the creator of the universe. Basically, we become humble when we look to the cross. The son of the creator of the universe took on the form of man to die on the cross for us, for sinful people like you and me. And I'm not trying to steal Reed's thunder because this is what he'll be teaching on next week. But if you're in your Bibles, look down to verse 8 in chapter 2 of Philippians. It says that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Christ do on the cross? He forgot his own needs and was thinking about the needs of others, of us. He knew that apart from his death, sinners like us would have no way to atone for our sins. So if you look at Paul's description of humility in verse 3, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Christ took on the form of man to die on the cross because he was counting us more significant than himself. We find humility in the example of Jesus and just his life and um, his death and resurrection. But we also find the ability to be humble through the power of Christ in us and through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit's constantly at work on our hearts, making us more and more like Christ. So as far as becoming more humble, I think my best advice is to look to Christ. In light of what he has done for us, we recognize that he sacrificed himself because we couldn't save ourselves. And that completely takes away any motivation for pride that we have. So let's apply humility a little bit. What does it look like to be humble or to think of yourself less? I think it looks different for everybody. But maybe it's sacrificing some of your free time to help somebody with homework, recognizing their needs are more important than yours. Or maybe it's being humble enough to realize that RUF isn't the best campus ministry necessarily, or that it's not the only group uh, doing any good for the gospel on Clemson's campus. And here's an idea that's really hard for me. Do something nice or sacrificial without telling anyone about it. Whenever I help out a homeless person or sacrifice my time to help someone move, I'm always thinking one of two things. Who's seeing this, or I wonder who I can tell about this? So basically, how much glory am I going to receive from this generous act that I'm doing? And that's just awful. That's an awful posture of our heart. I'm helping someone out not for their own benefit, but for mine. And I think that's just the natural posture of many of our hearts. Um, everything we typically want to do is self-serving. But what would it look like if we tried to do things without thinking about what we gain? So if you're into the Enneagram, I know some of y'all just got really excited and some of y'all just did an eye roll. That's okay. Um, but if you're into the Enneagram, I'm a two, which basically means that I'm a very helpful people pleaser. And that sounds great. It's like, you know, he loves people. He loves helping out. Um, it's great until you realize that my helpfulness comes out of a need for my acceptance. I crave praise for all the ways that I help. And when I don't receive that credit or praise when I do something nice, I get angry and insecure, and I think to myself, don't they realize that I'm helpful, or aren't they thankful for what I've done? 
So maybe being humble involves not holding your helpfulness over other people's heads. If you sacrifice your time or money and don't receive any credit or praise, remember a couple of things. First, you're loving people like Christ does. And second, your identity isn't based on other people's praise. And my last application of humility, and this might be the hardest, but maybe learn to say no, and not just saying no when people ask you to help them out, but being able to say, hey, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Maybe this person does, or I'd love to research and get back to you. Or something like, hey, I, I would love to help, but maybe this person would be more helpful, is an extremely humble attitude. It's true humility. Part of that is being able to admit that you're unable to help and that someone else might be better equipped than you. So let's listen to C.S. Lewis again about uh, what he has to say about a humble man. And this is kind of a long quote, so bear with me. Well, it's not that long, but. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. Probably all you will think of him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent man who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Lewis is saying here that truly humble people don't realize they're humble at all, and that's a beautiful thing. It means that Christ has taken such a hold on their heart and has met their every need so that they can focus on the needs of others. They're not looking for their own needs. They're looking to help others because all of their needs have been met. We understand that every need we have has been met by Christ. We can, tr- find, we can truly find humility. So Paul here is calling for or commanding unity through humility. But why is this something that we should pursue? Why do we need to pursue unity through humility? Uh, I think our primary motive for unity is gratitude for the Lord has done for us. And this is what Paul gets at in verse 1. This is where Paul gives us uh, four motivations for unity. So he starts off by, with an if. So if. That if can better be translated as a sense or because. It's some fancy Greek thing. But Paul is stating things that are already true of the Philippian people and are true for us today as believers. So since or because these things are true, we should want to pursue unity. But what are these things? What are the motivations? Paul gives us four. The first one is encouragement in Christ. As believers, we share in the blessings that Christ has gained for us, and we are encouraged by the way the Lord loves us and what he's done on our behalf. Second, Paul says that we have comfort from love. So what love is Paul talking about? Specifically, we've received comfort from the love that Christ has for us. And I already talked about this, but I can't say it enough. He loved us enough to die on the cross for us. And this should be our ultimate comfort, the sweetest comfort that we know, that he has already met every need that we have by dying on the cross for us. Third, Paul talks about participation in the Spirit. So as believers, I kind of mentioned this before as well, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and he is at work in our hearts, directing, strengthening, and growing us. The same Spirit dwells in all of us as Christians. The Holy Spirit brings us together, growing us closer to each other, and is in a way uniting us. And then the last two are kind of grouped together. He says, uh, if there is any affection and sympathy. So we have received an incredible affection uh, and sympathy from the Lord. This could also be said, incredible love and mercy from the Lord. And then the first three motivations kind of display all of this. 
They serve as concrete expressions of the deep affection and mercies that God has shown us. And I think all four of these motivations serve one main purpose, and that's to show that the work of Christ binds our, heart to, binds our hearts to the heart of the Lord. And because of this, we should love what God loves and desire what God desires. And what does he desire? He desires for his people to be united through the gospel, his people to be united together. Uh, Paul gives us another reason to pursue unity in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If the love of Christ has penetrated our hearts, we should desire for our minds to reflect the proper model. The proper model is and was Jesus. He was the proper model for the Philippian church, and he is the model for us today. And we can see Christ humbly loving others over and over again. In John 17, uh, Jesus has this high priestly prayer. It's an absolutely beautiful prayer. And in verse 11, he says, Let them be one, even as we are one. So the them there is believers, and as we are one, that's Jesus and God the Father. So Christ is praying for us to be united to one another as he's united with God the Father. So this is the ultimate unbreakable God, a bond between two members of the Trinity. And this bond is only found by us through the unity in the gospel. And then in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus is calling for unity again when he calls for reconciliation between people when somebody is wrong of the other one. And this is so that they can be unified. So in a unified church, in a unified group of believers, we should seek and pursue reconciliation. When somebody has wronged us, we, go, we tell them, hey, you wronged me. When we wrong somebody, we say, hey, I need forgiveness for this. And then if that wasn't enough, in that same passage, um, he goes on to say that the Lord blesses those who ask for things in a unified way. And then again, to find Christ um, pursuing unity, we only need to look to the cross. This is the ultimate expression of Christ humbly loving others for the sake of unity. We are unified under Christ's sacrifice on the cross. All who believe in him have received the same salvation and have the same future hope in him. So, now just for the application of this. What does this unity look like? I think the most broad way to apply it is within the church. And when I say church here, I'm not talking about a specific church. I'm talking about the whole body of believers in the world. Um, so remember what I said near the beginning about being of the same mind and being of one mind as part of the characteristics of unity? How it means oneness of conviction and confession, and that means that we are unified in the essentials. We're brought together by our common belief in the essentials. Um, these are the beliefs that make Christianity unique from the other religions of the world, that make Christianity Christianity and Christianity the one that saves. The non-essentials are the kind of issues that separate denominations and even churches within a denomination. We've already been over these, but it's baptism, forms of government, styles of worship, things like that. And we have to remember that there is room for multiple denominations in the world. And just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean that they're wrong. St. Augustine has this great quote where he says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. There is room for disagreement on non-essential beliefs, but that unity should, or that disagreement shouldn't uh, disunify, ununify us, whatever the word is, not unify us. Um, unity is also extremely important when talking about campus ministries, so applying it to our context right now. We need to realize that there are a lot of campus ministries 
doing incredible work for the gospel here at Clemson and on college campuses across America. We may all have different approaches, but we all have the same goal, and that's for college students to know, come to know and love Jesus Christ. So just like with different denominations in the church, it's okay that there are multiple campus ministries. We all have different approaches, and I personally obviously think RUF does it the best. But crew, NAVs, FCA, Campus Outreach, BCM, and that's just to name a few, are all working towards the same goal as us. So with that, it's okay when your friends decide to go to another campus ministry. I remember in college, I was so offended when somebody I got close to was like, ah, I'm going to do crew. I would get so mad. And then somebody looked at me one day and said, they believe the same gospel we do. I was like, you're right. But I was still, still upset. Um, and in fact, I would even say that being friends with people from other campus ministries is a good thing. You aren't betraying RUF. When, what you're actually doing is participating in unity among believers on Clemson's campus, and that's a beautiful thing. So that's with campus ministries. Christian unity is also important to apply to our relationships with our friends. And I know it's so easy and sometimes fun, especially as a lot of Presbyterians, to get in theological arguments with our friends. Um, and it's personally one of my favorite things to do. But, and discussing, those theology, discussing theology and beliefs is completely fine. But don't let those differences get in the way of your friendship and your relationship with that person. We can't go around viewing somebody as lesser because of different theological views. Because do you all remember that humility thing I was talking about? We need to be humble enough to remember that, first of all, we might be wrong. And even if we aren't, to remember that it's okay to have different beliefs and views on things. At the end of the day, we must remember that we've received the same salvation. And another huge part of unity within the church is realizing that everybody's different. The famous illustration of this is from Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, where he compares different church members to um, different parts of the body. Paul says in verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Everybody has different gifts and a different calling, and that's a good and beautiful thing. Could you imagine if the church was made up of a bunch of pastors, or if everybody was called to overseas missions? The church wouldn't be able to exist, and there would probably be way too much arguing. But different spiritual gifts and different callings are essential to the church. But then that raises the question, if we're all different, how can we truly be unified? So I'll close with this illustration. Um, think of a good player musical that you've seen. Reed always mentions Hamilton. It's a great one. I've never seen it. They're bringing it to Disney, which is exciting. Um, but think of a good player musical that you've seen. It's truly incredible to see everybody running around uh, in the perfect spots, saying their lines perfectly. It's a bunch of different individuals who have the same goal or primary focus. Their focus is on the plot and on the enjoyment of the audience. If one person was out of sync or tried to steal the spotlight, it would ruin the play, and it would also the enjoyment would fall apart. In a similar way, believers are like actors in a play, all performing our role and on fo all focused on a common object. And that object is Christ. 
when we're all focused on Christ and we're humbly using our own individual gifts to glorify him, we are involved in Christian unity. In Christ, all who believe in him are brought together. Through his life, death on the cross, and resurrection, we're invited into one unified, beautiful family, and that's the family of the Lord. Let's pray real quick.